Hi, everyone. Welcome and thank you for tuning into The Animal Files, the podcast where we expose the truth, science, and spirituality of pet care and provide you with the wisdom and tools you need to raise happy and healthy companion animals. My name is Victoria, an animal spirituality facilitator and integrative energy practitioner. And my name is Miranda, an animal health technologist and pet care safety expert. Let's dive in, shall we? Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Animal Files. We have another wonderful guest. Oh, I've been loving these interviews we've had all season, and I hope you've been enjoying them as well. Miranda's done so much in connecting us with these amazing people, and we're hoping that you have enjoyed them so far. Today, we have Debbie Dobson. She's an animal behaviorist based in North Carolina, and she works mainly with fearful and reactive dogs that people tend to get from rescues most of the time. They tend to come with traumas. So we are going to talk about all of this stuff and it's going to be a great conversation. So I'm just going to toss it to Miranda. So take it away, Miranda. Thanks, Victoria. So I know that you originally offered pet sitting services, or I don't know if it's originally or if you still offer the pet sitting services in combination with the animal behavior services. So I started out as a pet sitter and that was an interesting career because before that I had done a lot of babysitting. One day I got a call from this woman and she said, we're going up to the Cape for two weeks in July. Can you come and stay at our house and take care of the dog and the cat and the fish? And I knew the dog and the cat, but they had this huge, fish tank built into the wall of their dining room. And it was mm. a saltwater fish tank. Oh, and wow. I, I didn't know the first thing about taking care of saltwater fish. So I said, I'm happy to do that. But Mike, your husband, is, he's going to have to write down all the instructions. This was way before, you know, texting, way before internet. So to his credit, Mike did that. And nobody died when they were away. And that launched the pet sitting business. And it just grew organically from there. So probably in the early days, most of the dogs I took care of as a pet sitter were family members. They were usually from reputable breeders and they were perfectly happy, normal dogs. But by about the early to mid 1980s in Connecticut, more and more people started adopting dogs from shelters. And I started seeing behaviors in dogs that I had never seen before. Mm. You know, I, I would try to reach out and pet them and they would cower mm. or, you know, they would run and hide or they would stand there and shake and salivate. So I tried to understand what was going on. And I realized that probably the reason the dogs had ended up in the shelter was not a good thing. And there had been some trauma before. Mm -hmm. So my challenge then became, how can I bond with this dog? How can I help this dog to realize that I'm not going to hurt them? There's nothing to be afraid of. And what I discovered was the very first tool that really, really changed my relationships with these fearful dogs was taking them for a walk. Mm. They loved that. Mm. And because dogs lead with their nose, it, it only took maybe 10 minutes and, and all of a sudden they were outside and they were drinking in all those interesting smells 
and they forgot all about being afraid. Mm -hmm. And so we did this like three, four times a day, however long it took. And it only took maybe two, three days before this very frightened dog was fine having me around. I've had some similar experiences because I actually used to do pet sitting services in the past as well. And there's one dog that was a border collie. I don't know what her history was, but she was uncertain. It could have just been her herself, but she was uncertain of people she didn't know. And once I started taking her for a couple of walks, because that was basically what I, I wasn't hired as a pet sitter. I was hired as a dog walker for this dog. And once I took her for a couple of dog walks, I was suddenly her best friend. And she was so excited to see me every time I came after that. And then there was another dog that yes. also had some issues, which I don't know the history of either. But again, taking the dog for a walk created that trust as well. It's amazing how something that simple can make that much of an impact on an animal. Exactly. The other thing I remember too is there was there was a woman and her husband who had two Kishans. Do you know what they look like? They're the mm -hmm. large dogs, very long hair, not very big dogs under all that hair, but <laughs> really just one was a male and one was a female. The female was a rescue and she was very food motivated. The male, on the other hand, was very bonded to the woman. So mom was gone and she said, <laughs> don't worry, just wave some of these treats in front of him, you know, and she had this array of very high value treats, sausage and cheese and chicken and all this stuff. Well, I did that. I waved every single treat in front of him and the other dog is drooling on the floor, wishing that she could get some and he, he didn't even make eye contact with me. Finally, when I said, would you like to go for a walk? And I was desperate by this point. I, I really didn't know because none of the food was making an impact at all. His ear twitched and I thought, okay, okay, let's go to find a leash quickly. And that's what changed it for him. So he wasn't, he wasn't a rescue dog. He was just very mm. depressed and mystical very much, mm. missed his mom especially. Do you think it could have been like a separation anxiety or? I think he was just very sad. Oh, okay. He just loved her very much and she was gone. And in his mind and heart, no one could replace her. Oh yeah. You know, I, I didn't replace her, but once we had gone for that first walk, it changed everything. It changed all the dynamics of my relationship. With mm. That's nice. That's nice. Yeah, that's wonderful. I think from what I understand, your real training or delving into the animal behavior world was with a dog named Nora. Is that correct? Yes, that was Nora who called me to the shelter. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Can you share more of your story about Nora and how that kind of all evolved? I do have to tell you this story quickly. Before I adopted my dog and she was the muse for my dive into animal behavior, dog behavior. I had been going to the shelter periodically, looking around, cruising through, and I saw all these nice dogs, but none of them really tugged at my heart. And I was very busy at that time as a pet sitter. So I, I was thinking, okay, if I get a dog, I probably really can't pet sit full time. Some people don't want my dog at their house, and I understand that. So I knew this was a big decision. But one day in late May, I was getting ready to go into town. I lived just outside of Sedona, Arizona, 
and I was kind of, you know, grabbing my purse and getting my keys. And all of a sudden, this voice came into my head, clear as a bell, said, go to the shelter now. And I thought, okay, okay, I'm having a real Sedona moment here. <laughs> and so I did my errands and I went to the shelter. And honestly, the shelter was fairly new and they had built some skylights in there. And there I was cruising through the shelter and there was this beam of sunlight coming down on this dog with golden hair. And she looked almost exactly like a dog I had rescued off the streets many years before. And I was smitten. So today I choose to believe that she called me. So I met her at the shelter and she looked so much like a dog that I had rescued many years before. I was definitely smitten. But one of the things I noticed when I did get to her run was that she was very, very anxious. Mm. She was pacing back and forth and back and forth. She didn't make eye contact and she just seemed so restless and so agitated. So I decided maybe it would not be a good idea for me to try to go in there. But next to her, there was a little puppy. So I opened his door to his run and went in there and he comes charging over and he's climbing up on me. And I just wanted that very beautiful, anxious dog to see that I wasn't a threat to her. I wanted her to see that I was a good person. Mm -hmm. And I, on the way out, I stopped at the front desk and I, I said, can you tell me anything about that shepherd mix? And they said, oh, she was dropped off with another dog by a guy couple three days ago who said that they were his girlfriend's dogs mm -hmm. and that's all they told me yeah. so I decided to keep going back and I went back to the shelter oh gosh at least for another week maybe even 10 days I knew this was a big decision I knew how much care a dog needed a dog you just don't leave a litter box yeah. out for a dog you know that doesn't work and i knew that they needed exercise i knew they needed training so it was a big decision for me and i also had two cats and i didn't want to upset the balance of my then furry family by bringing a dog in i wanted everyone to get along and if there was if the cats or one of the cats was really traumatized i i just wanted to be able to back out on it mm -hmm. So I brought her home and the cat that I thought would be fine was the one who arched his back and hissed. They later became very good friends. Mm. But my other cat, the one I thought would dive under the bed immediately, looked at me like, oh, okay, mom, we have a dog now. And then she, <laughs> she was like, whatever. So, you know, it, it, took, it took about a week or so, you know, I watched them closely, but not hovering over them, but I could see that they, they were going to get along. But then about two weeks after I brought Nora home, a friend of mine who had built, he and his son had built my garage. He was coming over to do some final work by the back steps. And I really wanted him to meet my dog. I knew he was a dog lover. He had two dogs of his own. And so when he took a break at lunchtime, I said, Walt, do you want to meet my new dog? And he said, sure. So I let her out and it was just like a Disney movie. He was sitting on the back steps and my dog was sitting next to him and he was giving her little pieces of his lunch. And 
I was just so touched by this. I thought, this is great, you know, the cats are okay, and now she's meeting my friend. And so I turned away, it was a sliding glass door, and I turned away to do some dishes or something. And about two or three minutes later, Walt opened the door and said, your dog just tried to bite me. Hmm. And his voice was flat. He was really upset. And I, I remember my stomach did a flip-flop because I had not seen in all the hours that I'd spent walking with her and hiking with her at the shelter and with my cats, I had not seen any sign of aggression, but I had not exposed her to a man. Mm. So that was the first clue. And over time, I pieced together what I think was her story. I believe that she lived with a couple where there was domestic violence. Ah. The man who dropped her off and dropped the other dog off, they were his girlfriend's dogs. I think she left and she left her dogs behind mm. to get away from him. And I believe that this man probably hit the woman, probably hit Nora. So here I was with this dog I had fallen head over heels in love with, but I really got scared I, and I didn't know what to do. Mm. So. A few days later, another guy came over to do some work on my house. And he mentioned that he and his wife had just lost their German Shepherd. And I thought, ooh, this is a message. <laughs> Maybe this is an opportunity for Nora to be in a, in a home. And, and he was talking about their grandchildren. And I thought, this might be a better situation for her. So I made arrangements to drop her off a few days later. And I remember feeling just so guilty and, and ashamed of myself because I really didn't feel like I'd given her enough of a chance, but I also felt overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do. So about two hours after I dropped her off, they called me and said she'd run away. Mm. I don't know whether that was true or whether she tried to bite the man or what happened, but I jumped in my car, I went over to their house and I was driving around their neighborhood and calling and looking and I didn't see any sign of her. So I went to someone, the only friend I knew who had any ability to do this. I, I was not very tech savvy or anything at that point. I may not have even had a computer, but I did have one photograph of Nora and my friend put together a poster for me with a picture of her. And I plastered it all over town. I contacted the radio station and they made public service announcements. So I said, would you please, you know, announce this on the local radio station? They did. I contacted the police station. I, I went back to the shelter and I fessed up and told them what I did. They were not happy with me, but I was afraid. I was really also afraid that if I brought her back to the shelter, she probably didn't stand much of a chance of being adopted. Mm. So two, three days went by and I got a few phone calls. I tracked down every lead. I hardly slept at all. I wasn't eating. And I was really just, if I said, okay, God, if you give me the chance to be reunited with this dog, I'm, I'm going to figure it out somehow. I don't know how, but I'm going to do it. 
And finally, on the morning of the fourth day, I got a phone call. But I just want to let you know, this was the end of May in Arizona. It's up in the 80s during the day. There are coyotes, mm. there are scorpions, mm. there are rattlesnakes. I mean, there's no water to speak of. I was worried sick. Mm. But finally, on Sunday morning, I got a call from the shelter. And then they said, we think she's behind the shelter, but she won't come. So I jumped in my car, raced over there, got to the back of the building, and I could see this, there was a manzanita bush, which is not a very tall bush, but I could see sort of this glinting golden color behind the bush. And so I called her name and she kind of poked her head out a little bit and it was her and I was like, oh. And she, she recognized my voice and she came running over and by now I'm sobbing hysterically and I said, I'm so glad to see you. And that was, that was the beginning of my commitment to try to help this dog. Mm, wow, that brought tears to my eyes. There's so many emotions that just kind of went through us kind of feeling what the dog was feeling and, and everything. And I'm just so glad that you guys were reunited because that the dog probably oh. just didn't know and just went back to the one place it had been, which was the rescue, you know, just the barrage of emotions that that dog felt. And I'm so glad that you guys reconnected. That's beautiful mm -hmm. story. There is a reason the dog chose you. <laughs> well, you know, I, I felt by, by the time I got the phone call, I, I was berating myself and I felt like I had failed her and, you know, somebody else had failed her and that's how she ended up in the shelter. So I, I didn't give her a chance. And back then, this was probably about 1996, maybe 97, there wasn't a lot of information out there about dog behavior. Mm -hmm. You could go to the library and you could get books on dog breeds and dog training and dog agility, search and rescue. But I needed information about how they thought and what they felt. And I didn't know what a trigger was. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. And so... Then a neighbor of mine told me about, and I know this is a, still, even today, a controversial subject. She told me about this TV show about the dog whisperer. Mm. And I thought, oh, okay. And she told me a little bit about Caesar Milan. And I went to the library and I found um, like two or three DVDs of his early shows. And I watched those again and again and again. Some of the things he did back then, I didn't agree with. Mm. I thought it was way too rough and too harsh. But I remember one show, it was an early episode. He was working with a rather small woman and she had a big Rottweiler that she had rescued. And this Rottweiler was very reactive and he pulled her, dragged her down the street mm. practically. And Caesar, one of the things Caesar Milan focused on with this woman was the concept of leadership. And I had never thought of that. I was like, wow, you know, okay. It, being a leader doesn't mean that you're going to put a choke chain on the dog. It just means being assertive and calm and you, you change your body 
language and your posture and your voice. So I, I used that and I slowed myself down because my reactive dog would get so revved up when I walked fast or talked fast and she couldn't listen. Mm. So I started changing myself and started paying more attention to her. I love this. It just kind of yeah. wraps everything that we talk about over the last, uh, I don't know, two years in a nice <laughs> big bow. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's wonderful. But, you know, you guys, really, the truth is that I was bumbling along. I mean, I didn't have m much guidance. And I, at one point, I, there was a woman in, in Sedona who had been a trainer, and she used to train dolphins at SeaWorld. And so I thought, ooh, if she can train dolphins at SeaWorld, she can train my dog, right? Mm. She came over to our house and Nora didn't like her. And Nora like got sort of behind the table and growled. And I thought, well, this isn't gonna work either. <laughs> so I was on my own. And uh, I read every book I could get my hands on. Some of the books I read were more like, have you guys ever read any of that James Harriet books mm -hmm. where he tells all these wonderful stories about the animals? Yeah. Some of these were books like that, but I would pick up on things. The person might say, oh, Rover alerted to the rabbit or something. And I was like, what's that? What's an alert? I didn't even know what that was. I had no clue. And finally, after reading and reading and reading, and absorbing and watching Nora, I finally figured out what an alert was. <laughs> I mean, it's funny now, but I didn't know. And then she had the stare. She had that, that herding dog stare, you know, where they put their head forward and their ears are mm -hmm. back. And that was her way of saying, don't mess with me. I didn't know what that was either. So in the beginning, it was like, gosh, two steps forward and three steps back for a long, long time. Hmm. I would take her to Uptown Sedona because that's where all the tourists were. And I thought, okay, she needs to deal with men. They're half the world's population. I will have her on a leash. <laughs> and it was, it was overwhelming for her. The sidewalks at that time were very narrow and I can just remember putting myself in her place and there was a stream of people coming right toward her and, and half of them were men and she sometimes froze on the sidewalk. So I got to know all the little side streets off the main part of Uptown. And if we needed to duck down the side street and walk around a little bit and be away from the people for a while, we did that. But she might have been fine there on a Monday and, and made progress in Uptown Sedona. And then when I brought her back, you know, on Thursday, we, we had to start all over again. Mm. Were you ever able to get her to start trusting men again? Absolutely. One day we were in Uptown Sedona. And by then she was pretty relaxed. She was relaxed around groups of people. She was more relaxed around men. And she's walking in front of me. And I, I never had a problem with her walking in front of me. That wasn't an issue. And all of a sudden she turns around and she gives me this look. And I, I was like, what are you thinking? What's up? She's, she's happy. And she zooms over to this man. And I'm like, really? 
you're heading right for this man. So the man <laughs> bends down and starts petting her and Nora's just standing there. And I'm like, really? She never did that before. And then I, she was on a retractable leash and I finally got over there and I said, well, this is no, I introduced her. I said, this is Nora. She really likes having her head rubbed and she likes it when you scratch right above her tail. And she's standing there just so happy. And the, the man said, you know, we've been here in Sedona for a few days and I really love it here. It's beautiful, but I have to admit I was missing my dog. Mm. I think she picked up on that. Mm. He absolutely. I mean, he needed a dog fix and, and she knew it and she just trotted right over and, you know, Oh, that's so amazing. I almost cried on the sidewalk. I was so happy. That was a, such a huge milestone for her. Such progress. Mm, that's awesome. It's amazing. Obviously, synchronicity happened. You know, all the learning and growing that the two of you did in that time span from the moment you saw her for the first time to when she was missing to when you found her again, it just seems like it was put together perfectly like if this is exactly what she needed and this is exactly what you needed yeah i think you're right victoria um i miss her i still miss my girl i probably will always miss her but i also believe in reincarnation mm -hmm. so for years i've been saying nora someday <laughs> we will get back together again and when it's time, and for me, time will be when I'm, I have a house again. Mm. I'm going to look at two houses tomorrow. So please send good vibrations. I really hope one of these is going to be the place. Hey. So when I get another house, as soon as I settle in, one of the first things I'm doing is, guess what? Yep. <laughs> I'm going to find another dog. Mm. Yep, just that. Uh, call out to her and say okay Nora I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready I finally have the house you can help me dig the garden hint, hint. <laughs> that's so wonderful mm -hmm. one of the things that we often talk about is that when we give animals that have had some kind of trauma the space and the support that most of them will be able to move through the trauma that they have. You know, I, I'm glad you bring that up because I believe that if, if a young dog or puppy has severe enough trauma, they will probably never forget what happened. The dog that I adopted many years before Nora, we figured out she was shut in a basement like all day. Mm -hmm never wanted to go down in my parents' basement. One day my brother was playing with her and he goes zooming through the kitchen, down the stairs into the basement and Sheena followed him. And then she looked around and she's like, oh no, I'm in the basement. And she goes flying up the stairs. And that was about the last time she ever went in the basement. But she ended up becoming a really mellow dog. I think one of the things I believe is that Let's pretend for a minute that we have a litter of six puppies, okay? And they have the same mother and the same father. So the gene pool is fairly small. In general, of those six puppies, one of them will be fairly gregarious and fearless and 
oh, I want to meet this person and who's this new dog and nothing, nothing phases them. On the other end of the spectrum, there's another puppy who is much more timid. Oh, there's a little sound over there and, you know, kind of looking over her shoulder a lot or his shoulder a lot. They're not as gregarious. They tend to be more shy. Mm -hmm. And in the middle, there are the four puppies. And those four puppies, I think, are, are the majority of dogs. They tend to be a mixture of both. Some things will kind of set them off a little bit. And other times they're just, you know, trotting along. Everything's fine. If you get a dog, most of the time they will be one of the four puppies. But if you get one of the other two dogs, the more shy one and the more gregarious one, then you have to hopefully recognize this and raise your dog accordingly. I think Nora was born the shy dog. Mm -hmm. I really think she was. The first time I decided to socialize her, I brought her to a soccer field. <laughs> <laughs> and it was two games going, balls were flying, kids were, you know, running around and yeah. And we got out of the car, started to go toward the field and she just froze mm. and I didn't understand I, this was right in the beginning I thought it would be one soccer game and she'd be socialized right and she just it was overwhelming for her mm. it was way too overwhelming however by the end of the soccer season when Nora realized that we were approaching another soccer field she was in the back seat of the car and she would start to go crazy she would circle and circle and you know, all these little yippy sounds would come out of her mouth and she couldn't wait to, it was all I could do to clip the leash on. Mm -hmm. And she, she absolutely loved soccer games. So one of the things I learned to do with her is what I call systematic desensitization. And that's, you continue to expose the dog gently to the things that stress the dog out. And if the dog becomes overwhelmed, you back off. That's, that's what the side streets were in Uptown Sedona. Mm -hmm. Left that first soccer match. And the next time we went back to a soccer field, we just kind of hovered around the edge. We hardly even got close to the field. We were closer to the parking lot. And I just watched her. And if she moved forward, I followed her. And if she stayed there, I just stayed there with her. That's wonderful. You gave, mm -hmm. you gave her the opportunity to lead. You talked about leadership before with dogs and with people, you have to come together and have that compromise where you lead when you need to, the dog leads when he or she needs to. And I think that back and forth is what really strengthens the relationship mm -hmm. and really builds that bond. It's like any positive human relationship. I mean, that's what we do. You know, we, we compromise and we ask for and we wait and, you know, we're compassionate and we're patient and we can make suggestions. But in those early days with Nora, I, I had to learn how to be patient. I had to slow myself mm -hmm. down to accommodate her. And yet I, I wanted her to, to really be I wanted her to have a full life. I didn't want to sequester my beautiful dog away and, you know, stick her in the backyard or something. She was too pretty and too sweet. And um, I wanted her to become 
what I call comfortable in her own fur. Mm, I mm-hmm. love that. Oh, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> so one of the things I did with her was I taught people how to greet her because she was so head shy mm. in the beginning. I thought, okay, how can we adapt the meet and greet so that she feels relaxed? So I taught people to put their hand down at about her chest level so she could see it and she could just smell their fingers. Mm -hmm. And then I could actually see her body relax. Mm -hmm. And once she had taken in their scent and I saw her body relax, I said, okay, well, why don't you pat her head now? And I told them about the circles on her head. And then, so I developed this whole little ritual And she actually got to the point where she looked forward to meeting and greeting people, even children. And she was terrified of children in the beginning. Mm. And she became friends with our neighbor, Fred. She loved Fred. Mm. And Fred would bend down and whisper in her ear, I don't know what he said, but I didn't care. Nora looked forward to seeing a man in our neighborhood. And that was beautiful. Mm. So cool. Yeah. We talk about respecting an animal space. And so when you're talking about introducing, you know, what a lot of people tend to do is they'll walk up really quickly to an animal and they'll tower over them. All of those kinds of things can create fear in them. It's like a threatening gesture. And so giving the the animals sort of the space to decide, okay, yes, I'm okay with you coming a little bit closer. I'm okay with you petting me a little bit now, letting them lead. Yeah. You know, when I think about the bond, the very first part of the bond for me is always love. Mm -hmm. It's always love and compassion. And by then, Nora had wrapped her paws around my heart. I adored this dog. And I also felt sorry for her because I could tell eventually that she had been traumatized. So my heart went out to her. And the second part of the bond is trust. So eventually over time, Nora began to trust me and I also began to trust her. Mm It was going in both directions. We, we had to get to know each other. And because she was so frightened and reactive in the beginning, that probably took a lot longer than it would have with a four puppy dog. You know, mm-hmm. she wasn't a four puppy dog. And the third part of it is respect. And the respect has to go in both directions. And part of the leadership component for me and, and what I often do with clients, because many of my clients are women, is I talk about leadership and I talk about what I call benevolent leadership. And benevolent leadership has nothing to do with alpha, dominance, choke collars, you know, prong, nothing like that at all. It's about setting reasonable boundaries. So one of the boundaries I set with Nora was, this is your bed and this is my bed. Had she been maybe smaller and didn't shed so much, I I would have considered sharing my bed, but she was bigger and she shed a lot. So (laughs) as do shepherds. (laughs) Oh, springtime. She was like, remember that, remember pig pen from Charlie Brown? She had this cloud of hair around her body all the time. (laughs) So we vacuumed the car often, but anyway, so when she started nosing around in the trash can in the kitchen, I just said, 
quietly, no. And I got a trash can with a lid. Mm. She was actually very easy in terms of boundaries, but women are great with the love. They're great with treats. They're great with the affection. They do have a hard time setting boundaries. Mm. So a lot of what I do with clients is I tell them, you know, this is like a human relationship and something you have to set boundaries sometimes with other people. And if you're giving your dog what she needs and wants, you can ask for what you need and want mm -hmm. too. It's reasonable. Mm -hmm. It's not unfair. And you're not yelling and you're not using a shock collar and you're not you know, this isn't about an alpha role. This is about a reasonable request. Mm. You know, I think it's kind of a lot like in the workplace. And I think a lot of people can probably relate to this because you can have bosses that operate from like a dictatorship type of uh, role. You can have others that operate more from a leadership type of role. A dictator means that they just tell you what to do. They tell you how to do it, when to do it, where to do it. They don't care what you have to say or how you think about it or anything like that. Whereas a boss who operates more as a leader, they're going to want to have more of a partnership with you. And they're going to want to hear what your suggestions are and have sort of like a give and take. And there's like a respect level there, but they're going to still have, because they're the boss, they're going to want to have to set those boundaries as well because otherwise some employees, not all, but some employees will try to push those boundaries quite a bit. <laughs> You're exactly right, Miranda. That's, that is absolutely true. And what I often start one of my dog behavior workshops with is a, I ask people, okay, let's, let's go back in time and let's look at two very important world leaders who were prevalent during the late 1930s and the early 1940s. And I give them clues and I say they were both men and they both changed the course of history, but they had very, very different leadership styles. Who do you think they were? I'm thinking one was probably Hitler. Yes, one was absolutely Hitler. How about the other one? Winston Churchill? That's the other one I was thinking of, yeah. Mahatma Gandhi. Oh my oh. good. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so, I always get the Hitler part and then and then I leave this pause and I let them think and a lot of people think it is Winston Churchill, but then I then I throw that out and everybody goes, "Yeah, they were contemporary." Yeah, they were. So, I contrast, you know, they both significantly changed history mm -hmm. and they accomplished a lot but look at the difference in their both their leadership style and the good one did and the harm the other did yeah but i think both of them are operating from a place of i'm doing what i think is right there are some things about mahatma gandhi i've heard recently that are not as terrific as i originally thought mm -hmm. i have this quotes on the wall back here actually the one about the greatness of a nation mm -hmm. but i've heard other things about him but he did i have to say mahatma gandhi accomplished what many people had not been able to accomplish he got out from under the brits and i say this because my grandmother was english i, I can say that mm. so and it wasn't easy these the british were huh, they did not want to give up india no. i mean this was their crown jewel of one of their colonies and he got them to 
let go and go away and relinquish their power. What he accomplished was nothing short of amazing. Oh, yeah. It was definitely a turning point. That's for sure. And what Hitler accomplished was also amazing, but on the opposite end of the spectrum. Yeah. I mean, he really accomplished a lot. You know, his army was incredibly well-equipped and well-trained, and they probably took a lot of drugs and they got things done and but but the harm they did worldwide mm-hmm. that still felt today and the difference between those two men is is palpable yeah. right so I, I point that out to people as a kind of a glaring obvious example of of how leadership styles can differ mm-hmm. and then i talk about what benevolent leadership is mm-hmm. yeah that's an interesting take i like that yeah And I think it's also different, you know, when we're being a leader with humans compared to being a leader with animals, because animals are, well, we believe they're completely pure of heart. They don't have sort of any sort of sense of evil or whatever in them. Whereas humans generally have kind of light and dark within themselves. You know, I had an opportunity when I was in Sedona to work with a woman who is a fairly well-known animal communicator. Her name is Maya Kincaid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I may have heard of her. And I started working with Maya because she contacted me. I was doing freelance editing at the time, and she had all these stories that she had collected from all the different consultations she had done for people with animals. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, this is cute. You know, this is really Sedona. And, you know, I I really didn't take it too seriously. Mm -hmm. And then I read a story about a dog. The woman who care took the dog contacted Maya because the dog wasn't, he was off. He just wasn't himself. And she was concerned about him. She said, Maya, would you talk to him and find out what might be wrong? Mm -hmm. So Maya did. And He described to the best of his ability, he didn't have any medical terminology. He didn't have the word tumor. He didn't know what stomach was. He he described a ball-like object near where he put his food Mm. or something like that, Mm. okay? Those were the words he used. And then the woman took him to the vet and they x-rayed him. And sure enough, there was a little tumor by his stomach. Mm. (laughs) Amazing. We're finding out just in the last 10 years how incredibly intelligent dogs are. Mm-hmm. Have you seen or heard about those boards with the words when the dog pushes the button? Yeah. It reminds me of the gorilla who learned to sign. Mm-hmm. And remember she had the kitten, I can't remember the gorilla's name, but she ended up with a kitten and she called the kitten all ball. Oh yeah, oh, that's Coco, Coco the gorilla? Yeah. I think you're right. I think it was Coco. So when we're working with a dog, the first thing we need to do is try to understand their language. Mm -hmm. We teach them some of ours, but they communicate through body language. So we need to pay attention to what their body is saying. And you probably heard of Chaser the Border Collie, whose vocabulary exceeded a thousand words. I think so. So You know, it doesn't surprise me between the stories that Maya told me, how much information the dogs were picking up. They knew about things like cell phones. Mm -hmm. They knew about the internet. They knew about far more things than I ever, ever thought they absorbed. Mm -hmm. If we think that our dog has a vocabulary of 
like 20 words, we're not giving them enough credit. Absolutely not. <laughs> I would argue that those dogs that uh, use the buttons to communicate are just training the humans. Because I really believe that animals know so much. They absorb so much. They just can't relay the information in a way that matches ours. Mm-hmm. I mean, I consider myself a translator. I've had a cat say FOMO. I've said it on the podcast before when I asked her why she didn't want her claws clipped. She said FOMO. Like, where did a cat figure out what FOMO was? Really? <laughs> it just, just fascinated me. And then I worked with a horse and the horse shown me a dressage field. And then I got this like longing and loneliness kind of thing. Found out that the horse wanted to do dressage. She thought it was really cool, but couldn't because it couldn't be rid because he had kissing spine. And so there's where the longing and the loneliness is. So he knew all of everything that was around. Honestly, I think an animal's brain is just as complex as ours. They just don't know how to transmit the information. I think you're right. And interestingly, weekend... I am going to take an animal communication class Mm. that emphasizes your intuition. Mm -hmm. One of the things I really, really, really want to know, because this has come up so many times for me as a dog behaviorist and a pet sitter, people will tell me, now don't take Sammy down the street in this direction, because when he gets to Bowser's house, he he goes ballistic. So I, I think, okay. So I take Sammy out and we go the other way. And then two days later, Sammy's fine. I take him down past Bowser's house and he doesn't do anything. Nothing happens. So I keep going. Nothing happens. People will tell me things like, oh, he's protecting me. And I've read from different behaviorists and trainers. Oh, that's the dog is protecting himself, not necessarily protecting the human. And I'm thinking, It might be a little bit of both, Hmm. but what's the difference between me taking Sammy and the caretaker taking Sammy? Really, I have to ask this teacher, you know, what what is your, what do you get? And Victoria, have you, have you ever gotten anything about that? Um, Actually, as you were talking about, I got that he didn't need to protect you because you were strong. Like that's what I got. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if that goes into it maybe his caretaker isn't as strong as a leader as you are you know because you work with dogs so closely and you understand them and you can interpret situations much better I think he felt secure with you and probably does not feel secure with the caretaker so that's what I got I got it like well you don't need me to protect you That's what I got. (laughs) And I I was wondering myself whether it was the dog was responding to the different energies and between you and the caretaker. Yeah, that's exactly it. I'm glad you brought that up because that's something, you know, living in Sedona, people talk about energy all the time. And I, for a long time, I really, really didn't pay much attention to that. And I don't know what happened, but over the past few years, all of a sudden I'm getting huge amounts of information about people's energy. Like instantly, Mm -hmm. do I want to even spend time with this person? Mm -hmm. And it happens almost within seconds. I cannot explain that any more than I 
can explain the voice in my head that said, go to the shelter now, but it is what it is. And I've learned to respect and listen to that. Mm. And I think that you're absolutely right. Dogs, especially rescued dogs, because they had that trauma, they are more sensitive to energy. And a lot of times people don't maybe realize Mm -hmm. that. If they, let's say, have adopted a, a larger dog, sometimes people think that larger dogs are going to naturally be more protective there's that they're not they're not necessarily (laughs) but they think that the larger dog will do that as opposed to the smaller dog so there i think one of the biggest challenges for me and this is something that i i need to learn more about is how can i motivate people on sometimes what seems like very subtle levels, you know, really get them to look inside themselves. We live in a world today where we're absolutely bombarded with information and our senses are just almost, it's like a tsunami Mm -hmm. all the time. I took a Qigong class, I've done meditation. So what I often do in the beginning of a workshop is is we take deep breaths, we do some stretching, Mm. Pulling down the heavens from Qigong, which is a wonderful centering exercise. Maybe that's something I can incorporate more into the work I do with people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's beautiful, especially with dogs. Well, actually all animals, but with dogs, because the relationship is so closely connected that the more we can, we always say on the podcast, check yourself and be present and be like really mindful in the moment, I think we end up being that strong pillar that the dogs are looking for because all dogs find their security with their people. And if you are not secure within yourself, your dog's not going to be secure. So I love that, you know, bringing in the, the energy and the presence, the calling in the heavens that you mentioned from Qigong. I'm not familiar with the practice, but It all to me sounds like you are just centering yourself. You're making yourself strong and you're making yourself stand tall for the dog. And that's Mm -hmm. what's really going to help any relationship, whether you're working through trauma, whether you're working through the fear, whether you're just working with a dog that has never been trained at all. It's having that strength and that presence with the dog is what's going to make that dog feel secure Mm -hmm. and trust you. Yeah. And another thing that you could maybe look into that might work with your clients if you're if you're not already familiar with her is Donna Eden. Oh she does never heard yeah she's um she's kind of like the pioneer in energy work or at least that's how she's referred to. She's been doing it since the 70s and she teaches people how to balance rebalance their energy in their bodies. And it's E D E N. E D E N, yes. There's lots of videos on YouTube. I will check that out. Thank you. I appreciate that. I was just thinking when when you were talking before, Victoria, about, you know, becoming centered and all that. In those early days, I wasn't centered at all. (laughs) The only thing I really had going for me in the early days was that my heart was open to this dog. I loved her. I did feel sorry for her. And I truly, truly wanted to help her. Was I centered and balanced at that time? (laughs) Probably not, you know. And I I have to admit, in those early days, I was afraid. And people have told me stories over the years. You know, I had my dog for a month and we went 
somewhere and, and all of a sudden she just went crazy. And that's how it was for me. I, I saw no sign, no forewarning, nothing. And it was so, so shocking, truly shocking. I know that feeling. Yeah. I absolutely know that feeling. And I was able to see before Nora died, I was able to show people who I cared about that she really was this sweet, wonderful dog that I had known at home for years and years and years. They didn't always see that. And, and my friends would come over and I, I remember, especially in the early days, I would just tell them to go sit down. You know, if they were moving around, that was frightening. Yeah. So I was, just told them to sit down. There's some things in, in hindsight, there's some things I would do a little bit differently, but Nora was in the end, just as much my teacher mm -hmm. as I was maybe for her in the beginning. Our roles sort of intertwined. One of the things she taught me, because we hiked literally thousands of miles mm. together. And it was her great joy and my great joy to be out on a trail. And Nora was absolutely, completely unafraid of heights. She would go to the edge of a cliff and look out at the scenery. And I'd be like, honey, sweetie, that's a really... She did this at the Grand Canyon. Oh, my goodness. I said, she was not on leash either. And I said, sweetie, that's the biggest cliff we're ever going to see. Could you please come over here and let me put the leash on? She's like, okay, mom. But she would stop on a trail. I'd be like, you know, marching along, burning the calories. She would just zoom off and take in the view. And she taught me to do that. Nice. Take a moment. Just take a moment and enjoy this beautiful scenery with me. Animals are our greatest teachers. Oh, yeah. They, they really are. And experiences the other one. You know, you had all this experience. You didn't know what you didn't know. And now you know what you didn't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just between your experiences with Nora and having Nora coming into your life, it was like your university in what you are meant to oh. do with your life. <laughs> She was given to me, I think, to be one of my greatest teachers, to be my inspiration. There's nothing more satisfying to me than watching a dog go from just frozen with fear to it's like watching a flower blossom mm. in slow motion. Right. The gratification I got, you know, especially toward the end of her life was just amazing. I wanted to share another thing, too. I never knew exactly how old Nora was, but she was somewhere toward the beginning of her senior years. I remember seeing this lump on her leg and we lived in Arizona. We, there was tons and tons of cactus and, and other spiny plants out there. I, I just assumed for about the first day that probably she had bumped into a cactus and the, and the thing got in there and it caused a cyst. But something told me I needed to take her to the vet. So the vet aspirated some cells out of the lump and she said, I, I'm really sorry, but your dog has mastosarcoma. Mm. And in 50% of the cases, it's malignant. In 50% of the cases, it's benign. And your dog's is malignant. Oh, wow. And I felt that same horror again, you know, just what have I done? How could, how could this happen? I've given her good food and she, she has love and she has a home and you know, I exercised her and I trained her and we went to agility and you know, how could this happen to my dog? 
I had to forgive myself and, but the cancer started metastasizing very, very fast. Oh, wow. And within a month, I could literally palpate lumps and bumps all oh, over the body. Oh my goodness, poor thing. It was absolutely horrible. So I sent an email out to a group of friends and I said, if anybody has any ideas or information they can give me, I, I'm open. I told them what the diagnosis was. And I got an email back from my friend, Fred, and I'm still in touch with Fred. Fred is a cat guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a man who love cats. I think that's great. <laughs> anyway, he had just been treated, interestingly. The universe was right there again. He had just been treated for cancer at Sloan Kettering in New York, major cancer center, yep. right? So he went through the traditional stuff. And then at the end of the treatment, his oncologist said, now, Fred, I want you to take this mushroom after the chemo and the radiation or the surgery or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And my friend goes, mushroom? <laughs> And the oncologist explained that this particular type of mushroom has a substance called beta-glucan. And beta-glucan is a very powerful immune system booster. And he said, Fred, if you take this, you can, you know, eat it. It's a Japanese cooking mushroom, or you can buy it as a standardized extract powder. Whatever you do, just make sure you take it because this will prevent the cancer from coming back. Mm. So I ran to our local health food store and I found a little tiny bag of dried mataki mushroom. Mm. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea about how much to get. So I took it and I, and I broke the mushroom, the dried mushroom into little pieces and I mixed it in with her food. And do you know that two weeks later, I could not feel any. Oh my goodness. Out nothing. That's amazing. That is awesome. Well, it just goes to show you that, you know, traditional and holistic medicine, they go hand in hand. Like you can't have one without the other. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really important that you brought Nora to the vet and you found all this and your first instinct was to learn more. I think a lot of people when it comes to traditional veterinary care is they hear something and then they lose hope if they get a diagnosis like that. Mm-hmm. And then they just resign because they're sad. I've been there. I've, de- I've dealt with a lot of this stuff, but the fact that you had the wherewithal, and I would argue that maybe Nora kind of guided you to start researching to find what works between the two of them. You know, she may have, I just remember feeling like we were between a rock and a hard place. Mm-hmm. The vet was recommending chemotherapy. And to me, chemotherapy is an oxymoron. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, you know, they say, oh, they, you know, it's not as strong for dogs, but it can't be good. Yeah. It just, and she's getting older. And I, and I talked to people who, whose dogs had been diagnosed with cancer and they were grateful to get eight months. Well, Nora lived for almost two and a half more years. And I just, I found a standardized 500 milligram capsule of mataki mushroom, opened the capsule, dumped it in her food every night. And the cancer eventually did come back, but my gosh, I got more than two years and she had no side effects. Hmm. You know, she actually had a very, very high quality of life for over two years. I started noticing some things after the two years. One of my biggest regrets though, during that time was that I couldn't appreciate every single day. I kept thinking, what's going to happen? Is it going to happen? How will I know if it's bad? I couldn't really 
just enjoy mm. the time each day I had with Nora because I, I felt like I had this little black cloud hanging over my head all the time. That's one of my biggest regrets. If I ever go through this again, I will do it differently. Mm -hmm. But before we had big pharma, we had plants. Yeah. That's all we had. Mm -hmm. And I, I was thrilled to be able to find a, a medicinal plant that was inexpensive with no side effects. It was easy to give and it had tremendously amazing restorative yeah. effect. I was thrilled. Mm -hmm. We do recommend, though, to our listeners that if you are wanting to give some kind of a supplement to your pets, that you talk to your vet or a holistic practitioner to get some guidance on that, unless you really, really, really know what you're doing, because every animal is different and yeah. you don't know how each animal is going to respond to these things. Yeah. You know, when I finally did start giving her the dried mataki mushroom, she was in such bad shape, Miranda, that I figured either I yeah. rush her to the mo or I, I waited yeah. too long. And at this point, I have nothing to lose. Right. But I absolutely hear your caution. Yeah. And I've told dozens and dozens of people about this. My next dog, I'm going to start giving him or her mataki mushroom probably, I don't know, once a week or twice a week or something. And it, just as a precaution, yeah. just to keep the immune system nice and strong. But I'm so glad that worked out. Yeah. I mean, it obviously changed Nora's life very much. Yeah. And it certainly changed my life. And it was just, I never expected such amazing results so fast. Yeah. yeah. Well, when you're at that level where you're basically at the end, last like resort. You, it's yeah. a last resort yeah. thing, yeah. you got to do what you got to do. You know, I've been in situations like you have been. And it's tough. It's really tough. And the main thought that goes through our heads is how do we make their quality of life better? And mm -hmm. when you're at that point, sometimes it's like, you know, I've talked to my vet and I'm like, look, I want them to be happy. I just want them to be happy and comfortable. What can I do? Because mm -hmm. that's my only goal. And that was your only goal. And I think that is one of the messages that can come out of this little section is. Number one, don't lose hope when you get a bad diagnosis. Number two, reach out, find somebody, a veterinary nutritionist, a holistic practitioner, your actual traditional vet, get information, do your research, talk to people who have had results, but yet use discernment with that and find out how these things can fit into your life. But the main thing is hope and trying to create a high quality of life. Mm -hmm. And Absolutely. not resigning and getting into a position where you just give up mm -hmm. because then the animal suffers. Yeah. It's really terrifying when you're told that your yeah. beloved cat or dog or whatever it is, hamster, you know, has cancer. You know, I, it was a toss of the coin with Nora. It might've been benign yeah. and she got the malignant. Right. So that was another one of those stomach flipping moments, you know, like in the beginning when Walt said, your dog just tried to bite me, it might, you know, same thing. I didn't see that coming. I, I wasn't prepared for it. And I, I was really scared. And, and at that point, I really questioned that where I lived at that time, there were very few holistic vets nearby. It would have been a probably yeah. two hour drive. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. It's probably different now, but I remember when Nora got bitten by a snake once, 
it happened on the weekend and all the local veterinarians were closed. So I knew that if she had a bad reaction, I would have to go either one hour north or one hour south. Mm -hmm. And I was prepared to leave at any moment. She was fine, but the veterinary care wasn't, you know, it just wasn't. Yeah. I remember trying to share the information about the mushroom with my veterinarian. And I told her what I was doing. I told her how much. And she just couldn't accept it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think they probably can't. You know, the association, the veterinary associations are very strict in a lot of things. So at that point in time, probably she couldn't because that would given her a black mark with the association. And, you know, I've also heard similar things like with human oncologists. Mm-hmm. They're not even supposed to. It's the whole liability know. thing. I mean, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. And I'm glad there's more people nowadays that are actually learning about this stuff. So we mm-hmm. don't have to worry about that anymore. Yeah. But I, I had a similar situation. I had a cat who I kind of readopted after 12 years. And he had kidney issues when he came to me. He was already in stage three. And I, you know, brought him to the vet. He had proper veterinary care and everything. And they all had this kind of uh, third stage three. It's going bad. Well, you need to put him on a low protein diet. Well, that right there felt really bad to me. And I actually had a conversation with my vet that kind of turned into a debate. And I did not lessen. I actually increased the protein in my cat. And that's because cats are carnivores. Like a dog, it wouldn't work the same way because they're omnivores. And I was able to keep Spike at stage three for two years and amazed both vets in my veterinary clinic. They had never seen such a thing. And it's because I, I went with, number one, I did my own research. I listened to my cat. I watched my cat. I observed my cat and I made the best choice that felt right in the moment. And those two years were high, high, high quality. He had no mm-hmm. problems outside of the excessive peeing and drinking. You would never have thought that he was a sick cat until mm-hmm. he flipped into stage four. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, I think our whole human outlook on healthcare mm-hmm. for people and for animals is changing very yes, rapidly. It is. Mm-hmm. And we're finding out because we live in this incredibly connected world and we have so many resources literally at our fingertips now, we can research things. Mm -hmm. And you can go online now and you can read three or four well-researched articles about something that you're thinking of doing and get the pros and the cons. Mm -hmm. And then you can make at least an informed decision. And if you need to go to a doctor or a veterinarian, you can say, okay, but I read this and what do you think about that? It's a whole different conversation. Yeah, it mm-hmm. is. Yeah. I like that you emphasized well-researched yes. articles because there is so much information out there and a lot of it can be garbage. So it's knowing how to find information that is reputable, that is backed up and that you know, you know, it's not just written by some dog lover or some yeah. uh, or whatever kind of thing. It's like they actually show where they're getting their information from. And the other thing I know, and I'm just going to play devil's advocate for just a moment. I had to take a statistics class in college to get my degree, which was torture for me because the professor was somewhat masochistic, I think. But anyway, (laughs) I I had a, a good math background and I was pretty bright, but this guy just, he just didn't. Anyway, 
One thing I did learn, though, in this class is that you can manipulate data like yes. Mm. So what I do when I'm researching something is I read at least four articles. Yeah. And I don't just read them from the first page. I go down into the second page and the third page. And there are some sources that I've found over the years that are pretty credible. But, you know, you can go into the quantum physics rabbit hole and, and talk about how researchers can manipulate little tiny particles of energy just by observing them and having expectations yeah. of, I'm not going to go there. Yeah, but <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a rabbit hole. <laughs> There's actually a movie but, about that. <laughs> yes, I know. I lived in Sedona, you know. So, you know, it's good to question things. I think we should have conversations with our veterinarians and we should have conversations with our own doctors and and ask questions and explore alternatives. Yeah. I think the biggest key here in this is discernment. Yes. Discernment. Always have discernment. Don't take anything for gospel, whether it's from your vet, whether it's from a holistic practitioner, whether it's from an article, whether it's from a book you read. Yeah, exactly. A discernment across the board and asking questions and having those conversations is where we can learn more, where we can find compromise, where we can mm -hmm. find balance and where we can truly give animals a voice. Yeah. Nobody knows everything. Yeah. When you think about the way that people treated dogs, even 20, 30 years ago, and how far we've come in trying to make their world better, more comfortable, how far we go now to try to understand them. And not everybody's there, but more people yeah. are there now than ever were before. I mean, people used to think of dogs as pretty dumb animals you know they weren't too bright but i remember when sesame came out mm -hmm. people saying oh my gosh you cannot teach a preschool child the alphabet <laughs> guess what <laughs> you can and you can teach dogs a lot and dogs absorb a lot of information too we are now just scratching the surface yeah. of how amazingly intelligent and the depth of their feelings. We have more technology to measure this. There have been experiments done about which parts of their brain light up mm. at, at certain times that they're the same parts of their brain as in our brain. It doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, animals are people too. They're just <laughs> like us. They are just like us. Just to circle it back to the behavior aspect, the more we learn about these animals and the more we give them more credit, and we give them more of the benefit of the doubt and we're observing them as they naturally are, which I consider their spirituality. Their instinctual nature is their spirituality. It is something that will never go away. And we humans need to learn how to understand it and make the compromises. You have to make compromises with your animal and that allows you to do the boundaries that allows you to work as a team and do that co-leadership thing. Yes. You know, Nora was my best friend. She was, when I had to say goodbye to her, it was one of the absolute hardest things I had ever done in my life. And I had been sober by then for, gosh, almost 20 years. And it was so sad that I... It was the first time in many, many years I even considered 
drinking again. Wow. Mm. But what stopped me was I didn't want her last memory of me to be anything but the woman she knew. Mm. I didn't want her to smell it on me and wonder why I was different. I wanted to be there as much as I could for her. And, you know, I, I <laughs> the day before she died, she was racing down the street with her friend and you know, I, I'd like to think that I did give her a good life. I'd like to think that I gave her everything she needed, hopefully everything she wanted. Mm -hmm. I gave her the experiences and the friends and the freedom that she needed. And in today's world, it's hard being a dog. Yes. We have leash laws and we have dog parks and stuff. And when I was a kid, you just opened your back door and let your dog out and and your neighbors knew your dog your neighbors knew your children i mean it was a different and people didn't drive as much and they only drove about 25 miles an hour right. it was a much safer calmer quieter world mm -hmm. and i understand the need for safety and all that but you know what if i can safely let a dog off leash and i trust that i have a close enough bond with them to let them go and, you know, chase a rabbit as long as they don't hurt the rabbit. I'm fine with <laughs> yeah. it. Safety is the key. And we're not fans of off-leash, but there are times when I think it works. And that is when you have that trust, that co-leadership situation, that strength and responsibility. And unfortunately, and don't get any ideas, listeners, you got to work at that. That's not something that any dog owner can have. That's hmm. something you work at. So if you have a dog and you're thinking that, oh, it's okay for my dog to be off leash. Uh, no, check yourself because there's a lot of things that you need to consider before doing that, because you need to consider the safety of the animal, not your ego about how well your dog is behaving. You know, there's that aspect. And if you don't understand the animal's nature, if you don't understand the animal's behaviors and how they perceive the world around them, then you have no place letting your dog off leash because that means you're not understanding your animal and you're looking at it from a, your human egoistic perspective. And that's going to end up when you having a dog that either gets attacked by a wild animal or gets hit by a car or runs away. You know, the first time I let Nora go off leash, it was on a trail near our house. I had been walking her on a retractable leash for weeks at that point. And she was still very high energy, very anxious. And I was like, you know, I got to do more here. I got to figure this out. So we lived in a neighborhood at that time that was surrounded by forest service land. Mm -hmm. So the whole neighborhood had this cushion of open space around it. And down the road from our house was a riding stable. So the riding stable had made an arrangement with the Forest Service where they could put riding trails in. So from our back door, we could literally go five minutes and be on any one of like six trails, wow. far away cars. So I thought, okay, we don't have to worry about the cars, but there are other things we could worry about. So I trusted that the bond we had was close enough. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget that first morning where I unclipped the leash and let her go. And she looked up at me like, really? Okay. <laughs> and I was like, Oh no, no, no. You know, I was so, I was like, okay, breathe, you know, calm down. It's okay. She disappeared. I didn't hear her tags jingling. I was really scared. So I marched along for a while and 
finally I called her back and she came right back. And what ended up developing was she would take off. I couldn't see her, I couldn't hear her. And then she would loop back and check in. I'm okay, okay, see you later. And that's what our hikes were. Mm -hmm. However, one morning we came home after our hike and I, I always fed everybody after that morning hike. So I was putting, you know, three bowls of food down and changing the water and all that. And I looked at Nora and she just didn't look right. And later on, about two hours later, I could see that her face was not the same. Well, I found out later in the day that she had been bitten by a snake. Oh, oh. Yeah. And it may have been a rattlesnake. I don't know, but I could see the little puncture marks in her nose. I think I said this happened on the weekend. I knew I could get in and drive one way, an hour, drive another way, an hour, but she never, ever got bitten by a snake again. Wow. However, I cannot say the same thing about skunks. She got sprayed by a skunk one day and a week later, she went after another skunk. And I'm like, Nora, you just got sprayed right in the face. I mean, she was salivating and her eyes were tearing. You would think that after all that horrible smell and it must have tasted bad and no, no. She started chasing after the skunk again. It was one of the very few times I ever actually yelled at her. Mm. No. Yeah. I don't know. Dogs and skunks and porcupines. I don't know what it is about those two animals that just they don't quit. It doesn't matter how many times they get a face full of quills or they get sprayed by a skunk. It just they just go right after it. Luckily, that was the last time she ever chased after a skunk. Oh, good. But I couldn't understand why a week later. I mean, you saw this animal. You saw what happened. You felt it. Why would you do this again? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I did take chances with Nora. I did. I admit that. I know I have met dogs, though, who I would be very reluctant to let off leash ever. Yeah. A lot of the scent hounds like beagles and, and bloodhounds and stuff, once they get a hold of a scent, they're gone. That's what they were bred to do. They were bred to track scents. So, you know, <laughs> they that's their focus. They're not going to listen to me yelling and calling and yeah. they're gone. Yeah. There are some dogs out there who it just uh, off leash won't yeah. work. It's that's why you have to know your animal and you have to check yourself and work towards the compromise and find a way to work together. And if that mm -hmm. ends up that that dog's never going to be off leash, then you have to be okay with that mm -hmm. because your animal safety, your dog's safety is more important than your ego. You can often find, and I've done this, especially when you're training, very often local parks will have a baseball field and it's fenced and it's not locked. And as long as you're cleaning up after your dog and you're not, you know, interrupting a baseball game you want to go obviously when it's vacant go in there let your dog off leash close the gate and then you've got a safe big area to practice mm -hmm. you can practice a recall and you can make it fun and, and you can throw the frisbee or the ball or whatever it is and your dog is safe and if you, some people feel very strongly about dog parks, not bringing your dog to a dog park. And I understand all that too. I was on the board of a dog park in Arizona and you know, I heard all the, the pros and cons, but for some dogs, that's the only time that they can be off leash mm -hmm. outside. It's the only option. 
So if you're fortunate enough to be able to find a local park with an abandoned baseball field at that moment and you have the time, yeah, go in there and, you know, have a go at it. Make sure you have a poop bag. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Another option is outdoor skating rinks as well. If you're living in the climate that has those. I never thought of that. Yeah, we no, we don't have any here. And I lived in Arizona, so there were absolutely yeah. none there. <laughs> but I, I bet you in places like Minnesota and Maine and other states with M letters, they probably have outdoor. I never thought of course, that, that would be in like the it. summer because I mean, if you try to do that in the winter, they're going to be sliding all around all over the place. Crowded <laughs> <laughs> out there on the ice, and there were all those people who wanted to skate. I have seen dogs on ice though, and it's it's kind of cute, you know. I mean, they're like Bambi. Yeah, right. You know, they go. Oh. Sometimes I like that on tile floors. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> when you're going to teach your dog like a sit stay, do it on a rug because their their legs start to slide. Yeah. You know, they're they're not comfortable. They don't like the slippery surfaces. No. <laughs> Well, who would if you can't get a grip on it? Yeah, I know. <laughs> well, I just wanted to thank you both so, so much for this opportunity. You've asked such good questions. I felt like you're on the same page. It, it's been an absolute delight and a, and a privilege to be here with you. And and I'm I'm glad that you have this show. And I don't have a website now, but when I do... I will be sure to put a link to it on my website because I want people to listen to you. You have a lot to share. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. Well, Maureen, do you have any last minute questions before we let our guests go? You had mentioned prior to the interview that you had a little more information that you would like to have included to help share your information. I think we have covered it and it's important for listeners, I think, to understand what you both have emphasized is the give and the take mm -hmm. of a relationship that you have with a dog. It's not about commands. It's not about being the alpha. It is all about give and take. Mm -hmm. Our dogs are always, always trying to communicate with us. And I think we owe it to them to try to understand what they're saying. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Anything we can do to hone in on their body language and get to know our dogs personally, because there's not always a cookie cutter formula. Mm -hmm. You know, what may work really well for one dog or what one dog uses in terms of body language to communicate something may be a little bit different from another dog. So the more that we can pay attention and become good observers of our dogs, the better. They'll appreciate us more. Yeah. When I pet sat, I used to ask people things like, do you have any little rituals that you have with your dog? Little fun things you might do before bed or, you know, in the morning or when you're getting ready to go for a walk, does your dog have a nickname? And it is so funny. <laughs> I would say the dog's nickname and they would look at me like, oh, how did you know that? <laughs> and they thought that was like amazing. They just, and I loved doing that because it made them feel, you know, it was a word that they were familiar with. It was like, really? It just helped them relax a little bit more. We've had some communicators on the show and sometimes the animals like different names than what their actual name is. So their nickname, they maybe like better than their actual name. So that 
is a way to respect your animal and yep. really give them a voice. You know, they're people. They're, they're just little people with fur. Mm-hmm. So if anybody wants to hear more, Debbie is actively looking for more opportunities to get her message out. If you have a venue that you want to have her speak. Or maybe have a summit. Yeah, well, I think a summit's a good thing. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so we can get this information out. So we can make sure that our dogs are happy and healthy and thriving. Because there's so little that most of us know about our dogs. And wanting to reach out and learn more about who your dog is on an individual level is what's going to make your relationship like super, super, super strong. So I'm so glad that you were able to come into the show, Debbie, and share your, your stories and your philosophy and your messaging. And it all comes down to trust and respect, you know? And what was the third one? Love. Love. Yes. Love first. Trust second, respect third. <laughs> yeah. If our listeners wanted to get in contact with you or follow you, how would they be able to do that? The best way at this point is to just email me directly. And my email address is dogmom7 at gmail.com. So it's D-O-G-M-O-M the number seven at gmail.com. Perfect. And we'll have all that on the, the show notes. So you'll have an easy way to get in touch with her. And you said you're working on a website, correct? Honestly, right now, Miranda, most of my extra energy is focused on finding a house. Oh, okay. Once I get the house and once I feel like settled and grounded again, Mm -hmm. once I feel that again, and once I have another dog in my life again, things will be very different. So yes, the website will get started. At some point, I will offer online classes and consultations because we have the technology to do it, although I need a little help getting that set up. But Mm -hmm. that's forthcoming at some point. And I'm looking possibly to even partner with some other dog people that I've had the pleasure of working with through the years. Just people who think and feel very similarly to the way I do about dogs and what we need to give them and and people who are lifelong learners. You can never stop learning. There's Mm -hmm. always some amazing new information. I remember when Clive Wynn wrote the book, Dog is Love. I had to have that book immediately. Mm. I didn't know what it cost. It's one of the best researched books I've ever read and it's extremely readable. It's Mm. not dry. Oh, yeah. Dog is love. And it's Clive, C-L-I-V-E. Win, I think, is W-Y-N-N. And I forget if there's an E at the end, but if you type that in, you'll, you'll find okay. it. Very readable, very understandable. And it what he's saying is, in a nutshell, and I'm really condensing this, dogs are genetically predisposed to be loving creature. Mm -hmm. And that's why he titled the book Dog is Love. Mm. Not surprising to me at all. But the research and the data that he gathered and the, you know, he and his team went to a a, a wolf rescue at one point and compared dogs with wolf. I mean, it was just amazing. You got to read this book. I mean, if you like dogs, this is one of my favorite books. Mm. Oh, cool. 
Well, in the meantime, while you get yourself all set up and you're doing what you need to do, if anybody wants to reach out to her, we will put her information on our website as well. Yes. We have a guest page and we'll add that there so Mm -hmm. they can get to you through our website, theanimalfilespodcast.com. Yeah. And when you do eventually get a website and maybe social media links or whatever, then you can share that with us and we'll add that as well. You want to have so much catching up to do, you know, but I have to prioritize. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that home is going to be, that's my base. You need your home base because like we said, a dog prefers stability <laughs> in its caretaker. So you need to be stable <laughs> if you want to have a really strong relationship and a thriving dog. This person prefers stability too. <laughs> I had a chance to write an article about dogs for a local magazine, a a women's magazine here in Western North Carolina. And it was called The Zen of Dog, Becoming More Dog-like. And why should we even try to be more dog-like? And I'll share that article with you. It's one of my favorites. We have a lot to learn from them. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know whether they figured it out. I think they're just naturally loving and loyal and funny and cute. And they have all these amazing qualities. Why shouldn't we emulate some of that? (laughs) I completely agree. Mm -hmm. There are teachers for a reason. So let's learn from them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I'll send you that article too. It's fun. It's not very long. It's, it came out well. I was, I was pleased with that. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. Wonderful conversation. I love these conversations where we just really get to talk about all of the different aspects of being an animal guardian and a a dog owner or a cat owner. It's so important that our listeners actually see the beauty that can come when you start looking at the relationship with your dog or your cat differently. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that we're able to bring your story and your message. And you always have a home here on the animal files. If you need us, if you need anything, if you want to come back in, if you write another article, if you anything, you have a open invitation. Well, thank you so much. That is so kind of you. And if you know of anybody who might want to adopt a beagle, have you heard the story about the 2000 beagles? No. Oh my gosh. Okay. So PETA did an undercover investigation last year in a breeding facility, which was really a glorified puppy mill in Virginia called Invigo. These dogs have This facility has been going on for like 40 years and they churn out beagles to sell to laboratories. Mm. Okay. So after PETA collected enough information, the information was brought to court. Fortunately, the judge said, either you guys need to do better or we're going to fine you or whatever. So Invigo just bailed. They actually turned their backs, walked away from almost 2,000 beagles. Oh my goodness. Isn't that horrible? Yes. Then the court system quickly contacted the Humane Society of the United States and said, help, we have all these dogs. You know, this was the largest animal rescue maybe on the planet, but certainly in the United States. I have seen groups of, you know, oh, 60, 80, maybe 100 animals at once. Never, never almost 2,000 animals 
in the rescue effort at once. Mm. So suddenly the Humane Society had to figure out what to do. It was summertime. The shelters are usually always full in the summertime. And to their credit, they reached out to a lot of partner organizations and started transporting about maybe 100 to 200 beagles per group. So they've been now brought to different rescue groups and shelters across the country. And they all need homes, you guys. They all need homes. Probably some of them have been adopted. Mm -hmm. But I sent a link. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Okay. I'll add that to the show notes so we can get that going. I'm sure there's plenty of beagle lovers out there that... I hope so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they need help. And honestly, I don't think there's ever been a rescue of this magnitude ever mm. before. So we want to help them. Right. Yeah. End up in loving homes where they can, there was one little clip of some beagles who had been brought to, I think it was a shelter in Virginia, and they had never set foot on grass before. Oh. And you know how cats are like, mm-hmm. like this, you know, if it's wet or something. The dogs were doing that because they didn't, they had never felt grass. And then they realized, ooh, this is pretty comfy. This is kind of soft. And then they started running around and acting. It was like within five minutes, they were like, wow, this is the great, because they'd never been outside really. Yeah, that's amazing. I've seen cows do that the first time they see a field. Really? Yeah, it's just amazing. Hmm. But yeah, so we're going to put all that on the show notes. We'll put it on our website. We'll do what we need to do to help get these 2000 beagles or whatever's left a home. And if you can take a few, take a few. (laughs) <laughs> there's I know there's plenty of people out there that like multiple dog households so <laughs> you can adopt them in pairs and give them a good life so thank you very much we're gonna let you go so you can uh, go on with your night again thank you for joining us and I hope you guys out there have enjoyed our conversation and you can uh, chip in and, and help Mm-hmm. Thank you so much again for having me. And it was such a pleasure to talk with you both. I really appreciate this. You're so awesome. welcome. Come back, come <laughs> back, come back, come back. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Oh my gosh. Another great interview. I hope you enjoyed these chats. That's kind of what they feel like. It feels like these guys are sitting in our living room and we're just having a really good time just sharing stories and experiences and all the wonderful work that these people are doing for these beautiful creatures that are on this planet. So I hope you enjoy all that. And thanks for sticking with us. If you have any questions or you want to reach out to us for any reason, you can always email us at the animal files podcast at gmail.com, or you can go to our website, the animal files podcast.com. And you can get all of our links to our socials. You can support the show. You can donate, you can get some awesome merch and you can even listen to the podcast straight from the website. So you don't have to go search it on the platforms. With that, we are going to leave you for another week. We'll see you next time on the Animal Files podcast. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to rate, review, and recommend the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want some more great info, be sure to check out www.theanimalfilespodcast.com.